Well, good morning. I have to admit that at the beginning of this week, I did not know I would be here. Um, and, uh, but God had other plans. And so I am thankful to be here. And I am thankful that by his grace, you all have come to hear what he has ordained for us to hear together. And I have to say that it's been a trying week in a lot of ways. It's been a difficult week. This is a difficult topic for me because I have been thinking about it for the past 11 years of my life in one way or another. Um, So difficult in the sense of, man, there's so much to say and there's so little time. But I want us to hear the truth of what God has for us in his word today. Today we start a new a, a new series, it's called Identity, and uh, that, that's the slide. Yes, I made that slide, I don't know if I like it, so there's that. But it gets a point, it gets the point across. Our identity is, uh, is foundationally in God. And so we need to know who God is foundationally, who is, what his identity is. And foundationally, we need to know who we are in him and related to him. So that's what our next 10 weeks will be. It'll be a focused time of who is God as creator? Who are we as his creation? Who is God as holy? And who are we as fallen? Who is God as redeemer? And who are we as redeemed? Who is God as our shepherd? And who are we as his flock? So we're gonna be focusing on all of those things for the next 10 weeks. And these first two weeks are kind of set up sermons for the rest of them. So bear with me. Uh, this week, we're going to talk about the Trinity, one of my favorite talk- topics to talk about, one of my favorite topics to think about, the one I've been studying more or less for the last 11 years of my life. And uh, as my kids and my wife showed up on Wednesday morning to the office to uh, bring us lunch, surprising me and Pastor Johnny, I, I was thinking about how does the Trinity actually affect our lives? The natural answer for me is in every way. But I've been meditating on it for the vast portion of the last 11 years of my life. And so I I wonder how much that actually affects us. Um, And I was meditating on this and my my kids are there and I was like, you know what? I I need some encouragement. And uh, so I decided to try to have my kids sing the catechism they know about the Trinity. Um, Once I prodded and prodded and I failed. They would not perform because Pastor Johnny's in the room. Uh, They're they're not me. They're more their mother in that sense uh, that they were unwilling to get up here and sing or preach or anything else without being very shy about it. So I tried to help them sing it. And most of our kids know it. It goes like this. How many persons are there in God? There are three persons in one God. It's nice and simple. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thank you. Boom. Best part, there are three <laughs> persons in one God. I knew if I started singing, somebody would join me. Uh, and we finished, and Beth looked at me and said, you sure do love the Trinity. It was in that moment that I realized two things, that the vast portion of my education has been focused on the Trinity. The vast portion of my last 11 years, like I've said, has been focused on the Trinity. And I realized, number two, that we spend time getting to know the ones we love. Isn't that true? We spend time getting to know the things that we love. 
We spend time learning the techniques to be better at whatever that thing is. It might be climbing for you. It might be reading. It might be writing. It might be you name it. But one of those great graces in my life that I'm so thankful for is that God has focused my heart on who he is and what he has done. And I can say that we are foundationally Trinitarian here at, in this place. As Christians, you have to be a Trinitarian, but we foundationally are Trinitarians. We sing the doxology every week. We mention the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in that song every day as we leave each other. We are going to sing the song, Holy, 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 which all of you pretty, pretty much know by heart as we started singing it. We're going to sing it in response to this time. We sing another song that's not so popular nor famous, but Come Thou Almighty King. Still one of my favorite hymns ever about the Trinity. But very, very often, as I did for the longest part of my life, I sang the holy, holy, holy. I sang Come Thou Almighty King and I had no idea what Trinity meant. I knew no idea what triune meant. And now you think, you know, we'd sing blessed Trinity. I would actually put together that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were the Trinity. I didn't do that. I was, I'm not that smart. But God had to bring that about in me after getting a hold of my life after I got out of the military and putting me in a place in a college ministry that was gracious enough to teach me what the word meant. So today we're gonna be focusing on the Trinity. We're gonna focus our hearts on who God is because we want to know him better. We should desire to want to know our God at a deeper level. And hopefully today will be just that. And now I can hear some of you thinking, oh boy, this is gonna be a long, arduous, massively boring, oh man, thing that I don't really think I need to know more about, but probably do know, should know more about. And, but I just don't know if I wanna hear it today. Let me ask you to do me one favor. Pray that the Lord of glory would render your hearts soft so that you might hear what he has for you, that the vastness of his word would come upon you, that his being would be opened up in a new way to you. For some of you, you might be thinking, oh, I know the doctrine of the Trinity. Good, I can check out. Again, I don't know if you actually know the doctrine of the Trinity if you wanna check out. Because even at the foundational level, we need to be reminded of who God is, and this is a foundational sermon and to say that, oh good, I can check out, I'm cold. Believe me, I'm cold too, my hands are freezing. Uh, that doesn't mean that I get a chance to check out. And by the way, God says in his word who he is and you should want to know more about him. Don't check out. Then there are other ones and I can think about three in this room, including myself, who might think of it this way. Oh boy, I can't wait to dive deeper into the biblical, the systematic, theological foundations of the greatest conceivable being ever. I hope he talks about perichoresis, the interpretation of the divine persons, the filioque clause, inseparable operations, the creeds, confessions, councils, heresies. Please, Lord, help me. No, we can't. Amen. There's one. I would love to talk about those things. <laughs> uh, you might hear some of those things today, but you won't hear them directly talked about. We don't got time to define all those words, much less talk about what they, where they are in scripture. Today is more foundationally for all of us, a, an opportunity to learn how to worship more in spirit and truth. And I sympathize for all of you that want to talk about all those things, but we can't, we can't do that. 
Today, I want us to see that we should be worshiping the triune God of glory with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our minds, and with all of our strength. That this is not merely head doctrine, but this is heart doctrine. It is fuel for your souls. So with that, I'm gonna have you guys stand. And I want you to hear this. If you wanna turn in your Bibles, we're in 2 Corinthians 13, 14, but I want you to listen fundamentally to this benediction as we begin. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, this verse is packed with so much richness that it is hard to even fathom how I'm going to even navigate the next 20 minutes or 40 minutes of my life. Lord, but you are the one who has preciously and concisely brought us yourself. And that I pray, Lord, now that we would be able to say with the psalmist, how precious are your to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I could only count them, they are more than I can stand. Lord, be with us in these moments. Open our hearts to hear how we should be worshiping you aright. Worshiping you for you. Worshiping you for who you revealed yourself to be. Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now, what we just read is a famous benediction. And benediction, by the way, only just means good word. Bene, good word. Diction is word. Um, or in, you, in a way, it's a blessing in many ways. You, it's fairly actually common to hear in most churches across America, across the world, as they end their services. And in a way, this verse is the very foundation for what we say to one another and what we sing to one another at the end of our services. In fact, this verse is such a beautiful benediction that people have been trying to mine it for all it's worth for since, since Paul wrote it. Mostly because it holds one of the major truths of the Christian faith in such a very small package. See, the Trinity stands with all three of these people. You see uh, Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see God, who is God the Father, as he has told us in 2 Corinthians from the beginning. And then you see the Holy Spirit. All three persons are right here. They're held in parallel importance. They're, they actually stand, rise, and fall with one another. They are the one God whom we worship. In a lot of ways, Paul is telling the Corinthians that this Corinthian church, everything he has said prior to this moment is summed up in these three phrases. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And so today we're gonna look at this small package and see how vast it is. He begins like this, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now some of us have an idea of what this grace might be, but I wanna to point to you what Paul is reminding the Corinthians that this grace is. See, he says that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is Christ's work that has redeemed them, the church at Corinth. The, it is Christ's work that which has been given to them as the greatest treasure they could ever receive. He even tells them this in chapter eight, verse nine, while encouraging them to live generously. He says this, 
For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. See, this is the greatest treasure anybody could know. And Paul wanted to make sure that they let that the last words that he said to them, this is the last words that we have recorded, the last words of a letter that was a series of letters that comes to a head with this truth. This treasure is something you did not deserve. This treasure is something that God did, that God gave at his own own expense and a wonderful gift that you have only received by faith. It's the same for us. And we must remember that we are the recipients of this greatest treasure, Christ Jesus, our Lord. And those of you who are in this room and you may not be a Christian, welcome. Um, Maybe you're just trying to figure it out. What is this Christian faith? Maybe you would say that you're a Christian, but you just haven't really made that next step, you know, like to live in accordance to the way God would have you live. Welcome. I want you to see that the vastness of God is is greater than you've ever actually encountered. You might know a definition of him, but he may not have actually affected your heart. See, Paul is reminding all of us today that the greatest, the grandest, the most unsurpassed, the surest treasure that could ever be given is the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that would push, put your faith in him as a grace in and of itself. See, the blessing of God, the Son, the second person of the Trinity is where Paul begins his ending. And he moves on and he couples it with this. And the love of God. And the love of God. Both letters that we have to the Corinthians begin by meditating on the love of God. But 2 Corinthians takes a, a, a different approach and expands on the content of God's love. And he says it this way, that the love of God shows itself through the, through the father of all mercies. He begins chapter one that way, that God is the father of all mercies. He's the originator of all things. And that God is the God of all comfort, especially for those who suffer in Christ's name. That he is the originator of their reconciliation with God through Christ. See, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 tells us even more. It attests that this love of God has made his people into new creations. New creations by faith because of the reconciliation that they have through Christ. The love of God, I will, we could spend all day on each of these parts and never get to the end of it. The love of God is so jam-packed with meaning. But here's the point. Paul is telling us that the love of God is what compels him and compels the Corinthians and compels every one of us to be one with God. It is his love that is the foundation for all that we know. It is his love that comforts us. He is, in fact, the comforter, comforter to all of his people. He is the liverer of his people, the hope and source of strength for his people, the reconciliation of his people. See, the love of God that Paul is pressing upon us here from 2 Corinthians alone is an all-encompassing love that attends to every aspect of need that we might ever experience, that we might ever see, that we might ever need. The love of God is a fatherly sort of love. 
It originates with God himself. And so that's one way that we see that God as Father, God the Father. See, it starts with him in his mercy and in his reconciliation, in his love, and it flows to us through the grace of Christ Jesus. So we've seen these two things, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God. But we experience both of these phrases because of the next phrase and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. See, without this, we, we would not experience the love of God. We would not know the grace of Christ. Without being brought into the communion of our Lord, we would have nothing and we would know nothing about him. In fact, we would not even see the kingdom, as my friend reminded me this morning, without the spirit impacting our lives and changing our hearts. This fellowship is one that brings us closer and closer relationship than brothers are. In closer relationship than your husband and wife is. It's a closer relationship because we are being placed in Christ Jesus by this fellowship of the Holy Spirit. See, 1 Corinthians 12, 13 tells us that this fellowship is won by the one baptism of the Spirit. That this one baptism put us in the one body of Christ. In fact, that's why we're, if you haven't noticed, every single sermon that we preach here at, at Southside is a sermon that is supported by every other song, passage, prayer, and, and communion. It's, it's undergirded by all of those things so that we don't do all of the heavy lifting in 40 minutes but we are inculcated in it from the very beginning. See, that is what the Spirit does. He inculcates us in the grace of Christ. He places us in our Lord, and we need to praise his glorious grace for it. This third person of the Trinity is what makes God's reality real to us. This benediction really just screams what 2 Corinthians brings with force. And we don't have all the time in the world to go through that. I mean, I believe the last time I heard it preached, uh, Travis went 46 weeks through 2 Corinthians. We're not doing that, not today. But we must see that the triune God of glory works and wills, and this is what Paul's point is. He works and wills for the praise of his glorious grace. He has saved us. He has won us. He has created us for his glory. Paul is leaving us with clear and concise language that represents the reality that God has made in our lives, the way that God has willed it to be, even in the face of suffering and in things that we don't understand. God's reality is still true. See, God has sought to save his people. The Father has initiated the salvation of his people in his love. The Son has accomplished the atoning work of salvation by his grace. The spirit seals his people by regenerating their hearts by his power. All to the praise of his glory, all to the praise of his grace so that no man may boast, no Corinthian man, no ancient man, no modern man, not any man, not any woman. No, it is all so that all men may boast in the one true and living God, the triune Lord of glory. This benediction is calling us to worship that God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that's what I, my prayer is, is that as we see God who, for who he really is, we continue to worship him in spirit and truth. 
that we cannot be separated from the two. We cannot be decoupled from the spirit and truth. You cannot be divided. It is one thing. To worship God is to know God. To glorify him is to make him known or make him known more readily, to see him more clearly. We want to glorify our father in these next few minutes. And now some of you might be thinking, I thought this was a sermon on the Trinity. And while I've just kind of seeded that through this portion, I want to assure you that that is all this sermon is going to be about the Trinity, a meditation on who God is. But our hearts and our heads must be engaged for this doctrine to take root in our lives. That's why we must see God for who Paul says he is, for who God says he is through Paul, that his grace is greater, that his love is farther than we could ever imagine it going. The fellowship of the Holy Spirit has been made by his work and for his good and his glory. And we are being brought along for his glory. Let's be a part of that today. See, we must be enraptured by this grand picture of reality that Paul has held out in front of us for God has created all of it. He continues to sustain it. And by our triune God, we will not err into stoic volcanism. We do not wanna be stoics. We do not wanna know something and then set our hearts on it and say, it's not gonna affect me. We want to actually be affected by God. The doctrine of the Trinity is not mere head knowledge to ponder nor is it purely an academic exercise, as some might say. No, it is the actual foundation of our heart's worship. It is the only root of truth, goodness, and beauty, the only thread that holds this tapestry of grace together that we know of it. It is the only testimony of God from God, of himself. The doctrine of the Trinity is meant to make us all worship in spirit and truth not to drive us to mere head knowledge or separate our worship and our whatever. You can't do it. If it hasn't affected your heart and it's in your head, today I hope is, that is my prayer that it will make you worship today. That the spirit himself will rend you. It will make it real for you, tangible, so that you might be able to worship in in spirit and truth. Now, 2 Corinthians 13, 14 has brought to light the very basics of what the term Trinity means. But before I want to go on, I want to kind of give you a larger definition of what the Trinity is, one that's kind of stood the test of time since the fourth century, because I don't want you to be confused, you know, because it can be confusing. I, I, I grant that. In fact, it took me a long time to be settled in what the definition meant. So I'm not expecting you guys all to walk out of here and be able to explain the Trinity at the drop of a hat. What I do want you to see is that the Trinity is discernible and that God has made himself known. So here's the definition. You ready? There are three persons in the one true and living God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. If you don't like the word substance there, you can say essence. It's the same word as far as I'm concerned. Though those of you who are writing, I'm gonna say it again, There are three persons in the one true and living God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. And we're gonna take this approach as we continue to look at our God, to stare hard into the face of what he has placed before us in this verse. 
We're going to see it in three foundations and three iterations. First foundation is this. There is one God. You guys heard that, in that, 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 that definition? There is one true and living God. There is one God. Foundation number two. There are three persons. Foundation number two. There are three persons. Foundation number three. The persons are co-equal and co-eternal. They're equal in power and glory. That's where that comes from. They are co-equal and co-eternal. Now you might be thinking, why are we looking at a definition? Why are we thinking about these things? Because I want to be clear with you. There's not really a clearer way to say it. I can demonstrate it with a, a slide, but there's not really a clearer way to represent the Trinity and all that it's worth. And so that is how we're going to look at it. There is one God. There are three persons. And these persons are co-equal and co-eternal. But you might be thinking, as we move into foundation number one, (laughs) what makes them one God? You've told me three persons' names, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We've seen that in 2 Corinthians 13, 14. Why are they not three gods? Um, I'm just gonna say right up front, they're not three gods because they're not us, okay? When we think about human beings, we think about human beings as a, a person and a nature, okay? We have one nature, right? It's human nature. But we also have one person, the thing that acts, one mind. This is all very philosophical for some of you. I realize that. I apologize. But we are one to one. God is not like that. He is one nature and three persons. So he expresses himself in three different ways, reveals himself in three different ways. So they are not three gods, as some might say, but they are only one God. And that's our first foundation. There is one God. That makes us monotheists, which means one God, mono one, deos, one God. Sorry, deos is God. And the scriptures tell us repeatedly that we worship one God particularly in Deuteronomy 6, 4 and Mark 12, 29. Moses and Jesus both tell us this. They say, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Our Lord, our Lord, Jesus Christ, the one who has saved us, the one who has brought us here by his grace, the one who reveals all that the Father has said and explains everything that God is to us as least as much as we can know. He's the one that's telling us that God is one. So we got to know what that means. And we can see that he is created as one God, that he has saved the people as one God. He has sustained the universe and is sustaining the universe as one God. This one God has a name. And now in your Bibles, it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. You see that? Some Bibles might say Jehovah, but the more correct word is Yahweh. And that's not, that should not be something you shy away from because the, while the Jews shied away from it, it's, it's, it's the, the name itself does not carry any holiness. It is the one that we're speaking about. And we know that one person is Yahweh, revealed to us in three persons. Jesus is our savior. He's our Lord. And we can say his name freely. Now, you might have a different take on that. That's fine. I'm not binding your conscience. But um, Yahweh is his name. He's the one, it's been revealed to us by God himself in Exodus 20. It says this, and God spoke all these words saying, I am 
the Lord, Yahweh, your God, Elohim. So he uses two words for himself right there. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The more particular word being Yahweh, Lord. Um, that's how he identifies himself as. But you notice I haven't actually told you why God is one yet. <laughs> and you might be thinking you're really bothering me with asking me all these questions. Why aren't these three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, an individual gods in and of themselves? Why even entertain this question at all? Let me give you two reasons, for discipleship purposes and for evangelism. Those who disciple, and I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say this as nicely as possible. Uh, we need to learn to represent God for who he says he is. This is how God has said he is. This is discipleship, right? Learning how to speak about God truly. We should have that desire. And in evangelism, this helps us protect our hearts and protect the faith, contend for the faith once we're all delivered to the saints, especially from people like Muslims who say that we worship three gods. We do not worship three gods. We worship one God who has made himself known in three persons. Fundamentally speaking, this is how God has revealed himself. He does all things at all times in one God. He is one in essence, one substance, one nature. These are all very important words. One will by one mind. See, the divine being is not divided, but in every way, he is one. So when we say that we worship one God, we mean that there is only one essence of the spirit of God, not divided essences between the Father, Son, and Spirit, but one essence that has revealed himself as Father, Son, and Spirit. John 4 tells us that he is spirit. So we're not talking about, when I say substance, I'm not talking about physical makeup. I was asked that this, this weekend. Are you talking about physically? No, 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 God is spirit. He can't be confined to a place. He pervades all that there is. In fact, inhabits all of creation. And now I realize that I'm wading into some really deep waters here and I'm gonna take a stop because I don't want to keep going and then at the risk of staying here for the next 20, 30 minutes talking about one God. But I want to move on. But here's what you need to know, that we worship a singular eternal being who is God, who has identified himself as Yahweh, our covenant Lord, the Lord Almighty. So foundation number one, we worship one God. There is one God. And now in this morning's text, we kind of come back to it. We've seen that these three divine persons make up this one God. We see the Son, the Father, and the Spirit all at once. And we have plainly seen that these three persons are not one God in the sense of one-to-one -one in human nature, like, like a human being is, but he is unique. So foundation number two is this, that there are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And while this is not the only text that shows us that there is three persons in one God, it is probably the clearest one, at least for our purposes today. 2 Corinthians 1, 21 through 22, though, illustrates that these three persons have three different actions in time and eternity. And they distinguish them, Paul distinguishes them by their works. This is what it says. And it is God, God the Father, who establishes us with you in Christ, who is his son, and has anointed us, and who has also put his seal on us and given us his 
spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. That seal is the Holy Spirit. This one God is distinguishable by his work of salvation. In fact, there is not really a clearer action by God that could uh, be brought to us to reveal his persons. And the whole Bible kind of attests to this very fact. So look at me with one example. Ephesians 1 reveals all three people, all three persons of God, but it focuses on the Father, God the Father. See, in his love, God the Father elects his people. That's the whole point, for the praise of his glorious grace. 2 Corinthians 5.21 proclaims that in his grace, God the Son atones for his people. Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, so on and so forth, promises us that by his power, God the Spirit regenerates the hearts of his people, gives them new hearts, takes out their hearts of stone and gives them hearts of flesh. But that is a more kind of 60,000 foot range view of what the Bible says about the work of salvation in the Trinity. Another very pointed place would be in the baptism of Jesus. We see that we see all three persons working at one time in one place. The son is baptized. The father speaks declaring Jesus is his son in whom he is well pleased. And the spirit descends on Jesus as a dove from heaven. All three persons working at the same time in the baptism of Christ, revealing who God is, revealing who the son is. In a different context, John by the way, the Gospel of John is where if you want to know about the Trinity, go read the Gospel of John. It will, you won't be able to get to the end of it without seeing Trinity, 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 Trinity. John chapters 15, 16, and 17, though, demonstrate, us, that demonstrate to us by Jesus' own words that the Father speaks. The Son is the revelation of the Father, and he tells us what the Father says. And the Spirit comes from both to make us alive in Christ. All this to say that the three persons of God permeate the pages of Scripture. And maybe you were thinking to me, or maybe you're thinking like I would have been thinking if I were in your seat. Man, that's kind of limited. You're kind of forcing this one. Actually, Genesis 1, 1 to 3, to Revelation 22, have the Spirit of God, the Father of God, the Father, God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son, all in, wrapped up in it, all over the place. In seed form in the Old Testament, but very, very clearly foundational to the New Testament. See, this Trinity shows up throughout the Bible's pages over and over and over. Now, I want to make something really clear that while there are three persons in one God, these three persons are not each other. Some people might say that, uh, that, they, that the Father, oh, well, all you're saying is the Father is the Son who is the Spirit. It's like, no, 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 no. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that they are three persons in the one true and living God. It might seem pedantic, but that's how we've expressed it over church history. I'm going to show you a slide up here that has the Trinity. At risk of um, giving you an analogy that represents God as best as we can, no tacos will do. No water does well. In fact, no masks make sense. But you must understand that this is the proper representation of the Trinity. See, in the center, you see God. To the right, upper right, you see the, the Father. And to the left, the Son. And the bottom, the Spirit. These are, these are all God, right? The Father is God. The Spirit is God. The Son is God. But they are not each other. And this is the definitional, like, in picture form, the definition in picture form that we have already stated 
They are equal in power and glory because they're all one God, right? But they all can be distinguished by their works in salvation. And so they are all different persons. And I realize that this can be hard to grasp. So I'm just trying to invoke some like understanding. When we're talking about the Trinity, we're talking about all three persons in one God. And why do we need something this clear to arm us or this clear? You guys are looking at it this way. Um, this doctrine to arm us in, against in, in evangelism particularly. Because you're gonna come up against your, a Mormon, your Mormon neighbor, and he's gonna claim that Jesus is the brother of the devil. Well, he can't be the brother of the devil if the devil was created and Jesus wasn't. All right? It's also to protect you against Jehovah's Witnesses who say that Jesus was just a merely adopted son of God. He is not the true living God. He's not even close to being God. He's a lesser God if he's anything, but he's a created being. No, he's not created. Only begotten. To, you know, we could get into that all day and fight about it all day, but Jesus is repeatedly called my Lord and my God in the New Testament scriptures. He's the great I am in John. The spirit comes from the father and the son who has to be the same spirit of God that is shared amongst the three. See, these three persons are one God. And God reveals himself through time as father, son, and spirit. But this also helps us not with just evangelism, but our own discipleship and our own prayer lives. We want to thank God for who he really is and what he's really done. So if you've made the mistake, uh, that's kind of endemic to some people, uh, just because they're not thinking about it when they're praying. But they might pray, hey, thank you, Father, for dying on the cross. Uh, you're not gonna be burned at the stake for that. But what you did is kind of commit some accidental heresy. Honestly, there's a lot of grace there. We don't really care. Uh, but at the same time, I do care that you know that you know who God is and that the son is the one that died for you, that the spirit is the one who raised him and the father sent him to the cross for you. There is grand and vast reasons as to why, but this is way, it's way clearer and way more beautiful to realize who has done what in our salvation. So we've seen now that we have one God and there are three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that leads us to our last foundation. The three persons are co-equal and co-eternal. Now, we see in 2 Corinthians 13, 14, that each phrase is building on one another. In fact, if we were to take one of those phrases away, we would actually be missing something from what, from what Paul has said about God to this point. We'd be missing some grand reality, like for instance, the love of God. If we talk about the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, what makes that possible? The love of God. If we talk about, but we miss the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we just say the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, so what? There's, these all build off of one another and it carries the whole weight of Paul's letters. Remember that Second uh, Corinthians for 1, 21 through 22? This, it, it was, it's basically talking to you about the reconciliation that you have in Christ Jesus is one that has been won for you and bought. 
but it is completely, this, this reconciliation is dependent on the son being sent by the father in his love and being sealed by the spirit. It has to be together. Otherwise, it is not the whole story. See, they act as one because they are one God and three persons. They all have equal power and glory. For instance, we, we see in John 17, particularly verse five, that there is equal glory between the father and the son. Jesus himself prays this way, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now we know that that's true, uh, or at least, you know, consistent with John, because John 1.1 1, 1 says that in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God, and word was God. He was in the beginning with God. See, Jesus, the, the Son, and the Father are co-equal and co-eternal. Even further, you see that the Spirit came on Christ's accord and the Father's accord. They both sent the Spirit. John 15 kind of shows us this. And that the Spirit came in Acts 2 and changed the whole world by one individual at a time, making them alive in Christ by his power, bringing him into the communion of those three persons by placing him in Christ Jesus. So without belaboring the point any longer, foundation number three tells us that these three persons are one God, co-equal, co-eternal in every way. Now, I, and I realize I've given you a truncated portion, like description, and you might be asking, so what? Still, you might still be asking, so what? But before we get to the so what, I wanna give you the definition one more time to summarize what we said. There are three persons in the one true and living God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. So what of it? I mean, I think most obviously we just wanna represent God well, right? We wanna to get to know the one that we love, the one that we profess to have love for. But also that we need to be equipped for evangelism, right? We need to be able to say that, no, the Trinity is not something isolated to what, like some people that said something in the fourth century. No, it's something that has been in seed form in the Old Testament, very deliberately placed in the New Testament because it's the foundation of the New Testament. And it is found throughout all of the pages of scripture. That this God is one and he is undivided in his actions. That should bring you so much hope that, and here's why, here's why. If, if you are saved, if you believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord, then you can know in every trial that you have the spirit in you, that he is empowering you to walk through it. That even when you go through so much tumult, when you misunderstand one another, that there is all of this craziness happening around us, outside of us, you have the, the father has ordained you to be here. The Son has saved you. The Spirit has brought you into the communion and empowers you to live by faith. Grab hold of that faith. It is there. Pray for that faith to be made real. That when you, when you are going through trials, when you suffer, that this God is the God of all comfort. That this work of salvation in your life should comfort you. That there will be an end to this world's suffering and that there will be a beginning to eternal glory with Christ. There, and it's because of the Spirit's work in you. 
That's because of the the Father's love that he set on you from the very beginning. And from the time that Christ died for you on the cross, from the instant you were sealed by the Spirit, made right, made new, made a new creation by the Spirit's work in you. You have every reason to trust God. There is nothing that the Father has not ordained for you in this world that the Spirit is not walking you through. And you know that because of the love and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know that because of the love of God and the grace of God. You know that because of the love, the grace, and the power of the Spirit who has brought you into his communion, into his fellowship. Fellowship that we have with one another. Fellowship that we have with God and the one that we could not make by ourselves. I mean, look around. The communities aren't created with such a wide and vast number of types of people, okay? Yeah, they're not, they're not. They're, they're made by people who are like-minded, right? They, or they live in the same place. But in this case, we have been brought to this one place by the one true and living God who has operated from the beginning of time to glorify his name. The Father has ordained it, the Son has won it, and the Spirit is empowering it as we speak. So, let us worship that God, not some figment of our imagination, not some piece of God that we think we know, but let's worship God for who he truly is and how he has revealed himself to be. Let's pray.